Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Hello, everybody. How are you guys doing? Going to do a little rock off for you. variation of Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, Opus 43, and that is Sergi Rachmaninoff. Just having a little fun this morning on my Juno synthesizer. I have it set up for grand piano and strings, a dual feature on my keyboard. I've had this sheet music on my music stand for weeks and just haven't (laughs) sat down to play anything lately. Most of you know that song from Somewhere in Time, the movie. That's where I originally knew it from. Now I know the name of the piece, but yeah, one of my favorite movies. But yeah, having some fun today on the keyboard today. We have a wonderful episode for you, as always. We're going to be talking about narcissism. We're going to be doing a deep dive on what that entails. I have an expert on the show today, a expert on narcissism, and has experienced it herself, as I have, and she has some really valuable experience in her advocacy work that I'm excited to tell you about. So we'll hear more about her bio in just a moment. I wanted to give a shout out to Charity from Oxfordshire, UK. I hope I said that right. Thank you so much for subscribing to the YouTube channel and saying hello. I appreciate that. When I take my next trip to Europe, UK is definitely on our list. There are so many things that I'd like to see in your wonderful country. And I would totally like to get get together with anybody over there in the UK that's watching or listening. I'm wondering if you heard about my show from Inspiration by Marie, where I was a, a guest on her show. Anyway, I do batch recording of these episodes and edit them way ahead of time. And so the rest of you that have interacted with me on social media in any way. 
I'm definitely going to be giving you a shout out as well. Just that my episodes sometimes can be out of order from, if that makes any sense at all. I do appreciate you guys. So I have a a Facebook Live on Sunday afternoons at 3 p.m. Arizona time. If any of you guys are hanging out doing Facebook scrolling, come and say hello on the Facebook Live. I'll be answering your questions. And it's just going to be 15 minutes or so, unless you guys have a lot of questions. It'll be great to meet you and to interact with you. Speaking of Arizona, we did have some rain here. We have our tropical monsoon season, which brings the only rain we ever get all year. We got quite a bit, actually, this year. We didn't get any at all last year, and so we were very excited. But now the the rain is gone, the humidity is still here, and the heat is back. <laughs> so yeah, it's uh, 110 once again, and it's humid outside. That is the myth about Arizona that we don't ever get humidity. We do during this time of the year, just probably not the rest of the year like Florida. But anyway, so other news in the Winkler household is my crown came out this week. I was eating a chicken strip and there was something crunchy in there and it was half of my crown. So I had to go into the dentist this week and get that crown redone because there were some decay underneath. So we will be talking about the trauma to my tooth today on the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. No, just kidding. Not going to do that. I actually had a good experience at the dentist. I was very comfortable with the expertise and the professionalism of the dentist this week. And I know that not everybody likes the dentist, but I've never really had any traumatic experiences. I'm very thankful for that. My jaw's a little bit sore. I'm still doing pretty good today. Still able to talk, (laughs) which is good. So (laughs) we're going to bring you the best gas and content to help you heal from domestic abuse and trauma. So I'd like to introduce our special guest today. Her name is Megan Kukurin. Let me read some of her bio. Megan became certified by the New York Department of Health in 2008 as a crisis and trauma intervention specialist. As a volunteer first responder for sexual and domestic violence victims in the emergency room at Mount Sinai Hospitals in New York City, Megan has seen and mentored over 150 cases. She received the Lydia Martinez Multidisciplinarian Award given by New York Alliance Against Sexual Assault and Joyful Heart Foundation. Outstanding service as a volunteer advocate in 2011. Megan created the Divine Self in 2019 after three years of extensive research on narcissism and surviving a very serious domestic violence relationship where she almost lost her life. Megan has become an expert on trauma bonding and helping survivors of narcissistic abuse and domestic violence break the cycle of abuse to be able to live a happy and fulfilling life. The Divine Self started as a YouTube video that quickly became a coaching business for Megan. She just launched her podcast, The Secret Garden, to dive deeper into the topic of abuse and empowering survivors 
to begin to explore their toxic relationships with narcissists. So enjoy my conversation with Megan Kukorin. Now, the best part of being a podcaster is that I get to meet other like-minded people that are doing fantastic work in abuse advocacy. People like Megan Kukorin. Welcome to the show, Megan. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I was on Megan's podcast a couple weeks ago and we had such a great time that I had to invite her on my podcast. So I'm excited. It airs it airs tomorrow. So um, I think it's going to be a great episode and such good advice and, you know, good stuff for abuse survivors. So thanks for coming on my podcast. Yeah, it was wonderful. And um, you're our resident narcissist expert this time. So I am. I am. I don't know if I, uh, it's so funny. I actually just just um, did a podcast a couple of days ago with somebody else and was like, oh, a narcissist expert. And I was like, I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of how you, how you look at it, right? Yeah. I was like, well, you know, you got to go, you got to go through the, you know, the, the PhD training, which meaning, you know, in a relationship with a narcissist to, to get that, that uh, become an expert, I guess. So um, yeah, I, I'm happy to to guide people and get them through it. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a brutal journey to get here. <laughs> yeah, we were both abused by narcissists. And so tell the listeners who aren't familiar with what exactly narcissism is. Sure. So I think one of the most unfortunate things in society today is that we say, oh, you know, he's such a narcissist. And that's not what we're talking about. Um, narcissists are people with personality disorders. And there's actually four different types of personality disorders. There's borderline personality disorder, narcissism, sociopath, and psychopath. And they all are on a spectrum. And pretty much the same trait that all of them have is they lack empathy. They don't have the empathy gene. And um, when you come into the wake of a narcissist, um, it's pretty, it's pretty brutal. They spin you into a web and abuse you. And, and really what they do is we call it extracting narcissistic supplies. So it's really like their, their drug of choice is, is abusing you. And they actually have a chemical reaction to that abuse that makes them feel in control and feel powerful. Um, and their goal is to always extract that, that, you know, that from you. So yeah. And it's really just because they lack empathy. So they're willing to do anything to get that narcissistic, narcissistic supply. Well, in my experience, they're, they're good at faking empathy in front of other people. Yes. Putting on a show for the right people. They're very good. They're very good chameleons. They will, they can put on any show anywhere for anybody that's watching and convince everybody else of a totally different story than what's going on behind closed doors in your home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely part of my story and my experience. Now, you're relatively new to being a survivor in a, of an abusive relationship, and you're still dealing with that. Can you share a little bit about your story? 
Sure. So I actually started out as um, I'm a certified crisis intervention counselor, and I got that in 2008 in New York City, um, and I'm affiliated with uh, Mount Sinai Hospitals, which used to be St. Luke's and Roosevelt Hospital, and I was um, did domestic and sexual violence advocacy. So I know a lot about abuse and advocating and trauma intervention, and then I fell victim myself to domestic violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but before it ever became physical, it was very mentally and emotionally abusive, and Um, I didn't understand what was going on, even though I'm certified in this, I didn't understand that I was being abused and it didn't, it took me going to therapy one day, even like I said, before I, it became physical for the therapist to look at me and say, Hey, you're a domestic violence survivor and, or victim. And she's like, this is a domestic violence relationship. And I was like, no, uh, no, I'm not in the hospital. I didn't hit me. And she's like, no, this is an abusive relationship. And, um, Mm -hmm. And that rattled me to the core. And then I came across a book called Dodging Energy Vampires by Dr. Christian Northrup. And I listened to it on Audible and I literally pulled my car over to the side of the road and cried for an hour and was like, this is what I'm, this is it. She knows what a narcissist is. And so she calls an energy Mm. vampire, a narcissist. And I felt so validated because I thought I was going crazy, to be honest with you. He -hmm. had me convinced so much that the problem was me and that I needed to fix everything. But -hmm. the bar kept going higher and higher and higher and higher and I couldn't fix it. And Um, and I was exhausted and I felt like there was something wrong with me and I was broken. And, um, I just felt totally validated when I heard that, you know, he was possibly a narcissist. And then I dove down the rabbit hole of narcissism and watched obsessively watched YouTube videos and that saved my life and, um, helped me kind of understand what was going on and find the courage to eventually one day leave. And I left in February of 2019. Yeah, that wasn't too long ago. No. But how in the world do you miss those signs? I mean, is it denial? I mean, you know, it's it's called cognitive dissonance. It's having two conflicting thoughts and beliefs at the very same time. And so what I think people is it's it's really that Stockholm syndrome, right? It's you understand that you're being abused and your reality is abuse, but the narcissist is so good at putting on a fantasy and a facade outside of the home and in the relationship during the love bombing phase that, um, that you get stuck and hang on to the fantasy and the facade and you really struggle with the reality of what's really happening to you. And that's what keeps it going. I believe it's this addictive cycle, right? So the domestic violence cycle is the honeymoon abuse, you know, and the, or the tension building and then abuse. And then the narcissistic cycle of abuse is idealization, devalue, discard, and repeat. And so during that idealization phase or that honeymoon phase, you know, it's a really beautiful phase in the relationship. So you think, mm-hmm. and then you know, that phase gets smaller and smaller and smaller as the cycle goes around. But I believe, you know, for me, I was addicted to that, that honeymoon phase or that idealization phase. And I think the narcissist is addicted to the abuse phase and the devalue phase. And, and we were kind of the little perfect dance for each other. Mm, I can totally relate to that in our, our families and our friends outside of the relationship can see this happening. (laughs) And they're Mm -hmm. like, they're telling you, Look, there's some red flags here, but we don't always listen, do we? No, my friends, uh, a lot of my friends told me fairly quickly on in the relationship that there was some red flags. And 
you know, they supported me through the whole thing. But towards the end, I think my friends actually thought I wasn't going to make it out of this alive. Regardless of the physical abuse, I was so stressed out. I was pale. My eyes were sunken in. I was crying every day. I was tired. I was deprived of sleep. And I remember them saying like, this is, um, this is a matter of life and death for you. Like, you're going to have to figure out how to save yourself and get out of this relationship. And only you can do it. We like to think the best of people that things are going to get better. Oh, this is just, you know, a phase he's in or, oh, things will get better. Or I did something to piss him off, whatever. And I mean, how do we know the difference between, okay, he's just going through a bad time and somebody that's abusing us. Right. I think we see the good in everybody. And we also look, look at it from the lens of our own viewpoint, right? So for me, it's like, well, I would never behave this way. And maybe if we go to therapy and we can talk, talk this out rationally, mm-hmm. we can fix it. But people don't realize there's no talking anything out rationally with these people. They don't, they don't come from the same place you come from. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really hard to get your hands around that and understand that. And that this journey is about you finding self-love and self-worth and taking this spiritual journey to leave these people and to really, it's, I find it soul searching and finding this side of your soul that I think maybe you've, you've disconnected with throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Now you've worked as a first responder for rape and domestic violence cases. You must really have some harrowing stories to tell. I do. I've seen a lot of things. I think when we think of abuse, we think of like the girl that's walking home late at night that like gets raped in the alley. And that barely ever happens. I would say maybe 2% of the cases I've seen are like stranger where something just really bizarre like that happens. Most of it was inner partner violence, whether it was with a friend or a roommate or a friend of a friend and they're out at a bar or, um, a boss, all kinds of family member. Um, And so I think that really opened my eyes to how serious abuse is and how much it happens in our relationships and happens in our everyday life. Mm -hmm. Now, what is a What is a crisis and intervention specialist? What do they do? So I was called, I would go on call. um, I would get to choose which nights I'd want to be on call and I would do a a 12 hour shift and I was home. And if anyone was brought to any of the three hospitals in New York City that we volunteered for, for domestic or sexual violence, they would call us and we would show up. And our whole job was to completely advocate for the survivor, Um, meaning anything from just, you know, I would go in and pretty much introduce myself and let them know what I was there for and kind of get the story. If they were willing to tell the story, if they weren't willing to tell the story, that's also fine. I would let them know that I was there and, you know, going to sit there with them. My job was to ensure they understood everything that was going on in the hospital and that they got the correct treatment that they needed and that they understood their law, the law and what rights they had. And if they called the police, what can happen and what um, could happen if they don't call the police, but we could still collect evidence, which we could keep in the hospital and they could become an ID number, how to get victims compensation um, for domestic violence. I did a lot of safety planning. So even if their survivor wasn't willing to leave that night, 
I started the process of, you know, how can you start opening your own bank account? Do you have a phone that you can hide somewhere that if you need to leave, like if you leave, where could you go? Do you have kids? What does that look like? You know, do you, you know, connecting them with um, the center to give them attorneys. So we did everything, but really our main job was to advocate, especially when the cops would come in. Um, the cops were pretty brutal um, at times. And, you know, their job is to find out what happened and they can really re-traumatize the survivor. And so mm -hmm. my job was to intervene and say, hey, let's take a break, or they don't want to answer that question. You can't, and, and the cuffs can't tell the advocate to get out of the room or no. And so it was really nice to have the advocate there. I was, and I'm, I'm a neutral person. I'm not able to be subpoenaed in the court. So I could be there and hear everything. Um, and the cops really couldn't do anything about it. And they didn't necessarily like that so much, but uh, my job was to always ensure that the survivor was comfortable and understood what was going on. Wow. I wish that everybody had an advocate like you by their side when they've gone through something traumatic like a sexual assault. I don't think every state has, or even every city has those kind of resources. I don't think they do either. I mean, New York City, the woman of this organization, it's the Crime Victims Treatment Center in New York. Um, she's no longer there, she's retired, but this woman, Susan Scenario, she used to work in the hospital and she saw how rape victims were treated when they would come in and she was appalled. And just, and you know, and that the way they, how, how they would collect evidence and they weren't thorough and just really, no one really cared about them. And so she started this not-for-profit organization and she became, I don't even want to say just the best in the United States, but I want to say she was one of the best centers in the world for domestic and sexual violence and trained, she trained doctors and nurses all over the United States um, on how to collect evidence correctly and how to become a, and, and start this advocate program. And she, I know she went overseas to teach people as well about evidence collection and advocacy and just education on domestic and sexual violence. Mm, that's amazing. It so is. It's a beautiful needed. program. So needed. I think about it too. And I mean, my own domestic violence story, I didn't have an advocate show up in the emergency room. Luckily, I had a great detective, but um, I remember thinking, wow, this is this is when you need an advocate. Or I remember realizing that I was on the other side of the bed this time. Um, and even though the district attorney's office typically has victims advocates, they're not nearly uh, doing what I did in the ER and really truly are there to advocate for the victim, even if that means upsetting the district attorney or the cops or the doctors or the nurses. The job is to make sure the victim is always safe, secure, and understands everything. And if they don't want to do something, it's my job to intervene and say, tell everybody to get out of the room and let's regroup. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of people that could get upset, especially a doctor that's in the middle of the ER at night, right? And um, had a lot going on. If I said, hey, hold on a minute, we need to take a breath, a breath, you know, they need to calm down or they're, they're feeling unsafe. Let's, let's take a, let's take a break or take a moment. Yeah, you, you need to go and uh, train train the rest of the cities and states out there on how to do this. What takes place during a rape kit? Now, I, I've never been through that personally, but a lot of our listeners have. I mean, what actually happens when they do a rape kit and what happens to those kits when they're completed? Yes. So first and foremost, and I'm talking what happens in New York State I would assume it's the kit is probably the same everywhere, but the process is probably a little different for anybody listening. If you need to get a rape kit, which I hope if you're listening, that never happens. But um, once that rape kit is open, 
people need to be very careful about contamination and not contaminating it with their own stuff or leaving the room um, because there's a chain of custody. So the doctor that's doing it needs to stay completely focused and wait until the kid is sealed. Um, And it's anywhere from, I mean, it starts out with collecting evidence under fingernails. They take swabs of different areas of the body um, where there could be any form of DNA. It's clothes collection. If we feel that clothes need to be collected, um, putting stuff on the floor to collect anything that falls out of your clothes. Um, They comb through your hair and collect anything, any DNA that possibly falls out of the hair. And then it can get more intrusive where they take actual swabs of different areas of the body where you know, the, the assault happen to try to collect DNA there as well as pictures if the victim um, allows that to happen, which can definitely help your case. And then there's obviously things that you sign saying that if, you know, there's a chain of custody and only certain people are allowed to look at these, look at this evidence. Um, and then it's closed up. And in New York state, the state will keep it for two years in a, um, oh, and blood samples. We'll take blood samples to see if uh, there's any drugging involved or um, at that, it's too early to tell if this was just a, a very current assault to for any, you know, STDs, but we will do STD testing if you want us to. But uh, we, we normally check to see if there was any form of, of date rape drug or any form of drugging involved. And so they take all the samples and they'll keep it in a refrigerator for two years. Now the blood samples are only good for three weeks, um, but the rape kit you can keep for for two years and it's just got an ID number in it. And should the victim want later in six months say, hey, I feel different about this. I do want to prosecute, then, then the rape kit is there. Um, but most of the time it's handed off to special victims right away and special victims will take it and process it. So most of the time, people have know that they're gonna call the police, they have the rape kit done, and then special victims will come and take the rape kit and then they process it. And I know now that due to the Joyful Heart Foundation, which also is um, affiliated with Crime Victims Treatment Center in New York City, um, it's Mariska Hargitay from Law & Order. She, she ended the backlog of rape kits. And so what, what it used to be is they would collect these rape kits and then DAs, for cases that were never, they were cold cases, they never processed the rape kit or people would come and get evidence collected and they would just keep all of these rape, rape kits. So there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rape kits that were unprocessed. And she mm. worked really hard to get every single rape kit processed. And that was her end the backlog project. And I, they ended up finding serial rapists by doing that and 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 taking dna and finding um you know rapists that had happened from the 1970s and 1980s wow. um, and able to prosecute these people finally so um it's quite fascinating so now it gets handed off to special victims and it gets processed almost immediately regardless of what happens with the case i know that they try to process the kit and get all the evidence collected pretty much immediately that whole process sounds traumatizing in itself I can't imagine having to, to go through that after you've already been through a sexual assault. What's even worse is that the rape kit would get mishandled or not processed and they didn't even try to find the perpetrator. Uh, so, yeah. wow, that's great that there are people I, out there trying to keep that from happening. Yeah, and I think that... Um making sure whoever's taking the kit is making very good notes of everything. And you have the right to say no to any step in the process, right? So if you don't want swabs somewhere, you have every right to say, no, I don't want that piece of it done. 
and to say no. And that was really my job as the advocate was I made sure they understood exactly each step of the kit and what we were going to do and that they consented to it. So we're not re-victimizing them by sticking things in places that um, would traumatize somebody. Um, and then also, if you have bruising, in, insist that they take pictures of it. Um, you that can really, really help your case. There's so many times where I'm, you know, if I don't have a forensic specialist who's also trained by our center and it's just a typical ER doctor, I would make sure they took pictures of everything, even if it, it wasn't needed in court. I'd rather them have it in court versus not have it. And then the victim's trying to explain, hey, I had these bruises. And then, you know, the defense attorney is saying, well, why didn't these bruises get taken pictures of in the ER, right? And it was just because the doctor and that ER doctor is not going to remember two years later when your case goes to trial. So, you, you know, advocating for yourself and making sure they're collecting evidence and taking their time and being very thorough is key. I mean, we could possibly take our own pictures or have a trusted person take pictures for us at minimum. Absolutely. And then when we're in the ER, can we choose who does the rape kit? I mean, obviously they they would have a female with a female or a male can choose what sex. Sometimes. I, it really depends on who is in the ER and what doctors are available. So um, we tried really hard if a, a female survivor wanted a female examiner. Unfortunately, at times though, the hospital would just be busy and we're like, hey, it's going to be 12 hours before we can, the next shift comes on or uh, we can get the examiner, which is, I think, where an advocate comes in to help ease the, the nerves of, mm -hmm. of a survivor and say, hey, listen, you know, this is a trained specialist. And I was always able to calm them down if it was a male coming in to do the rape kit. And, and I always found that males doing rape kits we're way more calm and gentle with the women survivors than than the women the women examiners they were always really aggressive not aggressive but just i feel like they did it so much that they they would rush through it sometimes and so i was always very impressed by male uh doctors that would come in and do it because they're kind of nervous and they're very gentle and talk very smoothly and calmly and i was very impressed by that actually that's good because they already know they have a strike against them and they, yes. the victim doesn't want them there and they're terrified. And But I, I don't know what, what setup we have in our own state. I mean, can we have a trusted family member there or a friend if there isn't a advocate such as yourself in the ER, I guess, to calm people down? Absolutely. And even at, I would always, if there's family members there and the survivor wanted them there, then... I, it was always, my whole goal was to make sure the survivor made every choice. So if they wanted them in the room, great. I kept them in the room. If they didn't want the family member in the room, then it was my job to remove the family from the room. Um, everything was about giving them their power back and making every choice and every decision was theirs um, and that they understood every decision. But yes, I would recommend if you don't have an ad advocate to definitely um, bring a, a family member that you trust and who can help advocate for you and to take pictures for you while you're in the hospital. So in case that doesn't happen, it's much better to have more evidence than not enough evidence. Mm -hmm. Now you started the Secret Garden podcast. That's why well, I really like that name. Garden sounds so soothing and tranquil and inviting. And so how did you decide to start the podcast? So after I got out of my relationship, I woke up one day and I was just 
devastated. I felt like I had lost everything. I lost my relationship. I was going through a divorce, but I had just gotten married. I lost my job and started a new job. I moved, you know, I lost my stepkids. Like I didn't have a good relationship with my family or my friends. And just, it was in just really bad despair. I didn't know what despair felt like until mm. that moment. And I got up and I remember sitting in the kitchen drinking coffee. And I remember I was thinking about being an advocate in the ER and was, I just remember how much I got from their survivors. Right. And they inspired me so much. And I was trying to draw from that energy. And I was like, you know what? YouTube saved my life going through my relationship. Why don't I take my knowledge as a certified crisis intervention counselor and get on YouTube and do videos. And so I don't know why I did that. I was in, I'm literally in my pajamas drinking coffee. I look like the walking dead. I'm barely alive. <laughs> like I was just, you know, and I do these videos and all of a sudden it blows up and I get 15,000 views and I get emails from around the world of people begging me for help. And asking, you know, can can you can you coach with me? Can I call you? Can I tell you my story? And so, I just kind of became their advocate. I I didn't charge anybody anything, and I said, all right. And so I really just became a crisis intervention counselor. It's what I do, and I would listen to their story, and I'm like, this is where you can get help. Let me look it up online, and I guide them, and that was it. I'd send them on their way, mm -hmm. and then I decided I wanted to take it one step further, and I started the Secret Garden podcast where I bring guests on every week and just really deep dive into different areas of abuse and looking at it from different angles. I have anywhere from attorneys to survivors to spiritual coaches to life coaches and all kinds of stuff on, on my podcast. We want to talk more about narcissism because I had a real problem dating afterwards because I was vulnerable to, you know, the narcissist again, because I didn't recognize the signs and I was falling for the same crap, to be honest. So how do we break these patterns? How do we get away from these narcissists? <laughs> so I really believe that the narcissist comes into our life to shine a light on the areas of ourself that need I don't want to say improvement, but I feel like maybe we've abandoned, right? And our it's really, I call it the shadow side. It's really the side of you that you've just disconnected from. And you have to do the work. And I, I say to people, like, once you leave a relationship, like, you need to be single for a while yeah. and learn to love being alone. Learn to love being with yourself and taking that journey. Like, sit in the uncomfortableness with it. And learn how to make yourself happy. And it's nobody else's responsibility to make you happy but you. And when you can go on a date with somebody and you're like, okay, that was a great date. I really had a nice time. But if they don't ever call you again, it's not the end of the world. You know, I find that mm -hmm. we get so obsessed with men or women, men get obsessed with women. And that's where you, that's where you get yourself in trouble is when you start to kind of give up the red flags and, and get obsessed with them where, like I said, you can go on a nice date and it's a slow, gradual process. If it's a slow dating process, that's good. Right. And, and just continue mm -hmm. to be happy in your life and allow that person to come in and make sure that they're happy in their life and they know how to make themselves happy. That way you can have a nice, loving relationship and the two of you aren't dependent on one another for each other's happiness. I find that's, that's, that's the key. Mm. So what are the, um, you know, you said not to be obsessed about red flags, but 
where are some things that you should be noticing on a date that, oh, this is danger, Will Robinson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think in the very beginning, so over idealizing you, right? They, narcissists are very good at listening and extracting from you your biggest insecurities, right? They want to know about your life story and if you had a broken home and then they'll tell you, oh, I would never do that to you. And, oh, you're so beautiful and you're the best woman I've ever seen in my whole life. And I'll protect you from your abusive father and blah, 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 right? They'll take that and they're collecting data while they're doing that and putting you on a pedestal, right? And then all of a sudden they chop the pedestal out from underneath you and you fall. And then they tell you, oh, your dad is, you totally deserve to be abused. And your dad was completely correct. And you're not the most beautiful thing. And you don't make enough money and you're not good enough. And they use exactly what they extracted from you to then turn around and devalue you and bring you even lower. Um, So I think over idealization, but also eroding of your boundaries, right? Like I, I think of just small things. I had a client I was working with the other day. And she was talking about their first date and she doesn't drink, but the guy insisted on buying a bottle of wine and trying to like force her to drink. And I was like, that's really, there's your boundary right there. That's your boundary. You said no, you don't have to explain why you don't drink or what, what you want and don't, don't what, right. That's, that's a huge red flag. So little, and it's things like that where you say no, or, Hey, this is my boundary. And they step over the boundary, but doing it in a trying to do it in a, fun, loving way and air quotes. Um, that's not good. No stepping of the boundaries. And unfortunately we empaths and people that always see the good in people love to have our boundaries eroded. Like I had no boundaries in my relationship. It took me a very long time to learn how to have boundaries and to hold to my boundaries and really be like, Nope, this is my boundary. I'm not going past this. Right. That took me, that was one of the key things when I left was to learn boundaries and holding my boundaries. And I work on it every day. Yeah, you and me both, sister. I definitely have problems with with salespeople and telling them no. (laughs) (laughs) I bought more stupid stuff uh, because I didn't want to say no to the salesperson. I did not want to, and this is probably very common, I wanted to be nice. I wanted to be polite and I wanted the other person to like me and I didn't want to be mean, but sometimes we got to be mean, huh? I even think it's that's self-love. Right. And it's, it's you protecting you and that's your job as to protect you. Right. What do you, what else, who, who else is going to do it? It's, it's, it's your job to do it. Yes. I, I've told people on this podcast before is stay away from the dating websites at oh, least, yes. at least a year, like you say, until you've healed from your relationship and you get to know yourself because there are a lot of predators on those sites. Oh, yes. You'll get sucked right back into the vortex, especially if you're feeling that low. They'll just suck you right back in and you'll get and it gets worse every time. Right. If you didn't learn what you needed to learn the first time, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, when I talk about my ex on right, even now, when I talk about my ex, it's a collective, all of them. It's not just one of them. And, you know, I'm always thinking stories with one of them. Uh, They were all narcissists until I finally figured out that I need some work. I need to do some work on myself. It's a pattern that repeats a pattern until the pattern is broken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you don't have to be polite. Just say, no, thank you. Just say what you mean to say and stand up for yourself and the standards that you've 
hopefully put a put in place ahead of time. Sit down and figure out what you want in life. If you don't want to have sex before marriage, then you need to communicate that and hold hold to it. Or maybe you don't want to kiss on the first date. I mean, how many times the guys expect because they gave you, you know, dinner and a movie and they should get something in return. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, since this is a, a spiritual and religious podcast, I mm -hmm. love this guy. This is a pastor on YouTube called RC Blakes, and he really works with women and abuse women. And he always says, ladies, like your date, like why go for the clown when you can have the king? Yeah. Right. He's like, so many of us date the clown and they're clowns, they're jokers. He's like, yeah, but you miss the, the you don't miss the Rolls Royce coming by because you're dating the clown. And so, and I, and I think about that all the time. I'm like, he's so right. Right. We give up so much for these clowns when there's these beautiful Kings out there that are, are, are men and will never erode your boundaries or abuse you and respect you and see you for the beautiful soul that you are. And, and that's, you know, that's what you're looking for. Amen. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, God's, God's created you for a special purpose and has somebody in mind for you that will treat you as you deserve to be treated instead of taking what's left over in the junk out there. Absolutely. Wow. This has just been an awesome conversation. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you'd want to say to the folks listening today? No, I'm anybody that's listening. Um, you know, if you need any resources, you can always come to my website at divine-self.com and go to the resources tab. I have books and resources where you can find local groups, but I know that people locally to you can go to your group. Um, but if you're not local to either you or I, there's um, a lot of resources on there where you can connect to different um, organizations that are fantastic and willing to help. I'm always glad to partner with another advocate. So tell, tell the folks uh, your, your website and exactly how they can connect with you. For sure. So you can come find my YouTube channel at The Divine Self. Um, and you can find my podcast on any podcast uh, channel, The Secret Garden. And it has the Divine Self logo on it. And it's not the children's podcast, The Secret Garden, which pops up first. Yeah, it's I saw that. <laughs> Someone's like, I was listening to this children's thing. I'm like, not quite. But, um, and then uh, my website is divine-self.com. I'll have that all in the show notes for everyone and all the other resources that we mentioned on this episode. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Definitely stay in touch, Megan. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it's my pleasure. And I, you know, I wish the best to everybody listening. So the folks listening... We appreciate you listening to the show, and as always, we want to remind you that you are no longer a victim, but you are victorious. So we will see you next week. God bless you. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.